Before we dive into what we're going to study this morning, let's pray together. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather online together, sing, pray, confess our sins. And now, Father, we come to study. I pray for those at home, uh, might be watching little children, and uh, just the task of that, Father, doesn't lend itself well to listening to a, a sermon. But, Father, give grace to one and all. Give grace to me, even as I teach. Uh, may we learn something from your word that will help us in this time. For we ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake, for his glory. Amen. Well, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The key words here are tribulation and overcome. These words are used a lot in the book of Revelation. You might even say that for a Christian to be spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy, or spiritually mature, you need to understand and appreciate the significance of these words. Sometimes we are tempted to forget the first part of what Jesus says in these words. We're tempted to think that being a Christian means that my life will go smoothly. As long as I'm faithful, as long as I'm obedient, God will prosper me financially. I will not lose my job. I won't get the coronavirus. My relationships will be good. My children will be obedient and grateful and well-behaved. But to all who are tempted to hold views such as that, Jesus says, in the world, you will have suffering. In the world, you will have trouble. In the world, you will have disappointment. There will be pain in this fallen world in which we live. Now, Jesus also said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, if you could lose your job, if you could get sick or even die, why shouldn't I worry? Well, Jesus' answer is, very simply, I have overcome the world. We saw this last uh, Sunday in Daniel's message, and if you missed that message, you can go watch it and you can catch up. There in the passage that Daniel was teaching us from, it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy. Why? Because he was slain. He has overcome. He has conquered. He has won the victory because he was slain, because he died, because he suffered, because he was separated from the Father. We don't have to be. The bride, the church, the followers of Jesus don't have to be separated from the Father. We can overcome. And here's the deal. Whatever is most troubling to you, whatever happens to be the greatest tribulation in your life at this time, and I doubt that that is actually the coronavirus. Because while this coronavirus for most people is obviously a major inconvenience, uh, it's an economic downturn for sure. It's an interruption in travel and recreation and commerce and plans of all kinds. And for a few... For a few, it's a very serious health risk, even deadly. But the truth is, for most of us, we won't get the virus. And if we do, we'll recover. So the coronavirus, despite being a very serious expression of sin in the world and the brokenness that surrounds that sin, uh, because that's what all sickness actually is, sickness of any kind is an expression 
a physical, visible expression of sin in this world. But despite that, the coronavirus is unlikely your greatest tribulation. Here's the deal. Whatever your greatest tribulation is, I mean, if it's guilt, well, Jesus took guilt upon himself on the cross. If it's fear of the future, well, Jesus holds your future literally in his hand. Uh, maybe it's brokenheartedness for someone that you love whose life is in some kind of shambles. Well, the good news is Jesus loves that person. And you can pray to Jesus to be involved in that person's life. If it's loneliness, well, Jesus says he will be with you always, even on into eternity. If it's death, well, Jesus has conquered death. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and, of course, the life. And not only that, but Jesus has created something else, something actually very wonderful uh, to get us through things like suffering, difficulty, difficulty. And it's a community that we call the church uh, where we do not face tribulation of any kind alone, even when we are quarantined. Even when we are practicing social distancing, we are not at all alone. We have Jesus and we have each other. And we have the confidence that one day the tribulation of this world will come to an end. So take heart, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, says Jesus. Now this is supposed to be the mindset of every follower of Jesus. Your well-being, your health, your ability to live with love and joy and peace does not depend on circumstances. It depends on the truth that we internalize down to the very core of our being. And the truth is, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that, my friends, is a pretty good summary of the book of Revelation, this book we've been studying together. This morning, we're looking at two chapters, chapter six and chapter seven, and they are very interesting. There's a lot going on in these two chapters. In the first five chapters, John was establishing the fact that the lamb, Jesus, has overcome. But now the lamb begins to break open the seals that are on this scroll, God's scroll. And remember, the scroll is, in essence, the plan of God. The point is the lamb is unfolding the, God's plan for the earth, God's plan for redemption, God's plan for judgment. God is not going to leave the sin in this world alone. There are consequences for sin and for evil. Sometimes sin and evil gets punished here and now. But if it doesn't get punished here and now, it's going to be punished in the future. And this stuff is all, of course, very sobering. Uh, Revelation 6 begins with the story of the seven seals. And uh, this story launches a series of sevens that we'll be looking at, of course, uh, in weeks to come. There are seven seals. There are seven trumpets. There are seven angels with seven plagues. There are seven bowls, which are God's wrath, which are poured out upon the earth. And all of these series of sevens have to do with the judgment of God on sin, past, present, and even future judgment. And understand, John's audience was asking questions in that day in which John was writing. These are important questions. Questions like, if the kingdom of God has come, well then, what are all these Roman armies that I see around? 
Uh, if the gospel declares God's love and God's forgiveness for the world, well then, why are all the people proclaiming that message being put in prisons, being hung on crosses, being tortured to death? Why is it that Jesus lived, suffered, died, and then rose from the dead, and the whole world seems to be such a complete mess? What's going on? That's the question. That's the question that John's readers are asking. That's even the question that many of us today are asking. And that's the point of chapter 6 and chapter 7. John is answering that question for his first century readers and for us today. He was telling them, here's what's going on. Let me show you. Here's what it's all about. Here's the scroll, God's plan and purpose in it all. And then he begins to use imagery. And I want to read for you Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. John says, I watched as the lamb opened the first of seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder. Imagine that, like thunder. Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Wow. <laughs> These are the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And boy, do they wreak havoc. John is explaining to his readers the mess that they see all around them. In chapter 5, if we back up for a second, it was all about who was worthy to open these scrolls to execute the plan of God. And only one person was worthy, and that was Jesus, the Lamb. And so here's the plan now as it unfolds. The first horse is white. Its rider has a bow and a crown, symbols of authority, symbols of military might, symbols of political domination. Now, naturally, John's readers would have thought of the Roman government, right? A government seeking to dominate the whole earth. A government that was at that time oppressing them and persecuting them sometimes for their faith. The second horse, bright red. Its rider has a mighty sword in his hand. This horse and rider take peace away from the earth. This horse stands for war, stands for violence, stands for conflict. 
something that has troubled the human race ever since Cain and Abel, the two brothers, one killing the other. And, it, and that uh, taking away of peace continues right down to the present day. This writer, uh, it is his will to destroy, to devastate nations and cities and families and people everywhere. Then there's the third horse, black, black as can be. Its rider has a pair of scales in his hand, something different. The price of toilet paper and cleaning disinfectant are sky high. Oh, excuse me, it's wheat and bread, something even more important, right? Real essentials. There's a famine on the earth following close on the heels of war and violence. And so this third horse is all about famine and poverty and hunger, starvation and needs. And then the fourth horse. The fourth horse, and this is kind of the climax of these four horses. This horse, pale green, uh, like a corpse, its rider is death itself, we're told. And death comes to one-fourth of the earth's population, meaning that the toll is vast. It's huge, the number of people who die. But notice, it's also limited. John wants his readers to know that God is in control. The lamb is in control. And he is limiting the damage that these evil forces are trying to create. He's holding it back. He's limiting it. But it is devastating. Understand, John is not saying that God delights in this stuff happening. That, that is not what John is saying. John is saying that what God said in the very beginning... Going back to Genesis, in the day in which you eat of the tree of knowledge, you will surely die. You see, when human beings oppose the law of God and nations and individuals operate out of sin and selfishness and hatred and corruption and greed and desire to control and desire to dominate and desire to explode, I'm sorry, to exploit, it sets off a chain reaction that actually affects everyone. And the history of the human race is a record of these four horsemen over and over and over again. They ride between nations. They ride between cities. They ride into families. You think about it. The dates that we memorize in school and the dates of great battles, that, that's, that's the thing we memorize. The date for, for Gettysburg, the date for the battle at Little Bighorn, uh, Stalingrad, the Bulge, Pearl Harbor, Midway, D-Day. Human beings slaughtering each other by the tens or hundreds of thousands. Dates of great tribulation. Famines in Ireland. Genocide in Africa. Plagues in Rome, Spain. Viruses in Wuhan. Those are the dates we know by history. Those are the dates on these scrolls. The scroll that is in the possession of God that the Lamb is opening. Only, you see, God is using these great tribulations to both punish sin. That's one thing that's going on. It's going on always. But he is also perfecting his bride, perfecting the church as it passes through this tribulation. The Lamb judges and actually overcomes evil itself. Truth is, these four horsemen ride through office buildings. These four horsemen ride through the halls of government. 
Wherever people are willing to deceive or hurt or manipulate or seize uh, control for status and for power, these four horsemen are riding. Sometimes they ride through schools and neighborhoods. Certainly every time a gunman guns down innocent people, the four horsemen are riding. They ride every time a human being is abused. Every time a human being is wounded. Every time a human being starves to death, every time a human being is enslaved, the four horsemen are riding. They ride in the suburbs where husbands and wives are torn apart by conflict. They ride wherever human beings live in fear and abandonment and rejection. Today they ride in Syria and Palestine and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and the United States and Russia and Italy and Great Britain. They are riding now even as I speak, spreading a virus. It's what they do. And as they ride, these riders seem to be riding roughshod over the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And the churches that John was and is riding to, God's beloved, they're asking the question, why? Why? And John answers them. This is Revelation 6, verse 9 and following. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Do you, do you see the tension right there? I just want to mention, there's an interesting tension going on. There's both complaint, confusion, but at the same trust. Do you see the tension there? This is where the Christian, the follower of Jesus lives. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, complaint and trust, confusion and confidence. There's a tension here. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. John says, I see under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God, for the glory of Jesus. And understand he's not painting a a literal picture here of some place that actually exists in heaven. I mean, a holding tank, so to speak, for martyrs where they crouch down under an altar. That's, That's missing the point. What John is doing is he's giving expression to the voices of an anguished, oppressed, and persecuted church. Uh, These churches that John is writing to. And to all the churches that have lived anywhere and at any time uh, who have experienced like kinds of persecution and suffering and difficulty. Remember, the idea of martyrdom wasn't a vague or distant concept to these Christians that John was writing to in the first century. The early church had seen Stephen be martyred. They had seen James, the brother of John, be martyred. They had witnessed John the Baptist being martyred. They had seen Jesus himself being martyred. This thing was so real to the early church that the word for witness and the word of martyr are one and the same word in the Greek language. To be a witness was very often to be a martyr. Uh, A Roman historian that I mentioned before Uh, named Tacitus, writes about Christians. And he says, some Christians were thrown to lions in great Colosseums. Some burned at the stake. Some wrapped in animal skins and fed to dogs. Some were dipped in tar and used as human torches. 
Mothers were crucified with babies draped around their necks. Friends, these are real people. This is a description of real persecution and torture. People dying for their faith. And the churches are crying out, God, how can this be? How long is this going to go on? God, do something. And John writes to their survivors, their brothers and their sisters, some of whom are going to undergo the same fate. And this is what he says to them. He says, they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Wow, this is a severe mercy. The apostle John is in no way sugarcoating this. More Jesus followers are going to die, says John. Die for their faith. Die in the midst of tribulation so that others can come to faith. That's what he says. John is making the same point that the apostle Peter makes when he writes to Christians who are being persecuted. Peter said this, Peter said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What promise? His promise to return. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, justice will come for everyone, everywhere. But before justice comes once and for all, God is being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. These tribulations are simply a foretaste of divine judgment and divine justice. You know, virus goes around, Some people are going to die. That's going to be the case. But some are also going to come to know Jesus. I hope you're praying to that end because when a disruption like we are experiencing, like the world is experiencing right now from this virus happens, there will be people come to know Jesus just because of their desperate circumstances, just because they have no other place to turn. One of the things we as the church, the bride of Christ, ought to be doing is praying and asking the Lord God Almighty to bring his children, bring people to himself. Now, when the final justice comes, that is going to be both awful and awesome at the same time. Final judgment hasn't come yet. God is being patient. Uh, If we look at the sixth seal, um, it causes all of the kings and all of the rulers And all of these powerful people as well as weak people, these people who oppose God, it causes them literally to shake in their boots. They're they're absolutely terrified. They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? And that is the question, who can stand? And we find out who can stand in chapter 7. It's a picture of the the church going through tribulation. And the short answer, who can stand? The short answer is the church. The church will stand. 
This is what John writes. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And then I saw another angel come up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, and so on, right on down through the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there have been all kinds of theories in the church over the years about the significance and the identity of this 144,000. My own view is simply that the 144,000 is another symbolic use of a number. We've seen this already, that John does this quite a lot here in the book of Revelation. Uh, the numbers 12 and various multiples of 12 often have to do with symbolizing the people of God. Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, for example, is a way of referring to the Old Testament ecclesia or gathered people, church, if you will. Uh, the 12 apostles is one way of identifying symbolically the whole church, the church of Jesus. Put them together and you've got the 24 elders of Revelation chapter 5. It's a combination of the two. It's referring to all the people of God. And I think most likely this 144,000 is also a symbol of the church. It's a picture of God's people, the church, spiritual Israel, if you will, going through and coming out of great suffering. God says to them, don't fear, I will guard my church. That's his promise here. Uh, and that image is, the image that's used to indicate that to us is this idea of sealing on the forehead, the 144,000 are sealed by God. In John's day, everybody understood that a king would use a, a signet ring put in wax to, to seal up a document. And that was the king's way of saying, hey, this document is mine. It is precious. Do not tamper with this document, with this object, with this order. Uh, this is something every Jesus follower possesses, this thing of being sealed. The Apostle Paul says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwelt you, you were sealed with this promise. Bruce Metzger, a New Testament scholar, says that this sealing is about God's promise to protect his children, to guard his children, even though they go through tribulation. And the explicit number, 144,000, he says, it symbolizes completeness. It symbolizes wholeness. In other words, not one of the redeemed, not one of God's children, not one of his precious ones is missing. Not one, not a single one. God is saying here, every one of my children is precious to me. Not a single one is going to be lost. You have been sealed by my spirit and nothing can separate you from me. That's what he's saying. Not persecution, not armies, not disasters, not illness, not disease, not viruses, nothing. So take heart. You will overcome. That's the message. And then comes a second vision. This is Revelation 7 verse 9. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, this is the church, the whole church, who's now come through the great tribulation, and now they are triumphant in heaven. Uh, They are wearing white robes, and they're waving palm branches. Remember our study earlier of the church of Sardis. Uh, The white robes were promised to those who would overcome, to those who would remain faithful through difficulty, through tribulation and trial. The waving of the palm branches is just a a symbol of victory. You remember when Jesus was entering in Jerusalem, one of the things they did is wave palm branches and put them down before him. They thought Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to announce and to proclaim his kingdom such that the Romans would be overthrown. It was a a way of announcing. It was a symbol of victory. And uh, this is a vision of the church victorious. This is a vision of the church now in heaven in its proper place. And then we read verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, John says, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who came through the great tribulation. The point is the church makes it through the great tribulation. God sees to it that not a single one of his children is lost. Not then, not now, not ever. Everyone comes through the great tribulation. All of God's children. The great tribulation is all the wars and all the persecutions and all the famines, all the plagues, all the economic disasters through the centuries that have plagued mankind and the church. That's right there alongside them. Uh, This includes the coronavirus, which I hesitate to mention because even though we are all, of course, have to be caught up in this, even though it is a, a very serious situation, friends, I mean, it pales in comparison to being persecuted for your faith, especially when we're talking about things like being torn in two, ouch, being burned in fire for your faith being crucified for your faith, being eaten by lions or tigers or bears in some coliseum for your faith, being boiled alive for your faith. You get the idea. These are things that have actually happened to people who follow Jesus for their faith. Paul and Barnabas, when they were planting churches, told these churches this. They said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Of God, and they weren't kidding. Because in the world, you will have tribulation. Paul knew this firsthand. Paul wrote about it. Paul said of himself, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. That's 39 lashes. 195 lashes on his back. I would not want to see Paul's back. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. He says, once I was stoned and they thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. This guy was in a lot of danger. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, all for the glory and the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. The point is the church has always suffered, sometimes specifically for our faith, other times right alongside those who don't even follow Jesus. Like right now, we encounter the virus just like those who don't follow Jesus do. Paul Marshall wrote a book one time. I believe it was published probably in the late 90s, something like that. It's called Their Blood Cries Out. It's a difficult book to read, actually. Um, In this book, he writes about how the church is suffering for its faith today. And he documents how in over 60 countries in the world, some 200 million brothers and sisters in Christ face persecution almost daily, and this for their faith, specifically for their faith. Uh, They experience economic isolation or social ostracization or imprisonment or torture or death for their faith. So you see, there is great tribulation that went on in the past, is going on and will go on in the future until Jesus returns. It happens in the church. And then these difficulties that produce persecution in the church sometimes spill over into society itself. But all of this happened in the past and right up to the present. But the the difference is this. Here's the difference. According to Revelation chapter 7, the church, the followers of Jesus have this confidence that no matter the the tribulation, how great it is, how bad it is, no, no matter whether it's just the church experiencing it or the church alongside everyone else, it doesn't matter. The church is going to overcome. There's the difference. John's description is this. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Do you hear the tenderness of that? The one who sits upon the throne, almighty God, the lamb himself is going to shelter us with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Get in the picture. Neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. They're not going to perish in the wasteland is the picture there. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. It's what Jesus told us he was. He's the good shepherd. He's our good shepherd. And it says he will guide them to springs of living water. That's a a picture of flourishing. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It doesn't say we're not supposed to have tears. If somebody we love and care about perishes, of course there's tears. There can't be anything but tears. But the day will come when for the church, the bride of Christ, our tears are going to be wiped away. We will overcome. You see, this is the future for those who follow the lamb who was slain. 
They overcome. They're victorious. They come out of the great tribulation, praising and singing and worshiping. Friends, never forget that this faith that we talk about when we worship, this, this church that we're a part of and the church that we seek to build is the church where the lamb is our shepherd. It's the church where he will guide us to springs of living water, places of flourishing, wonderful places. It's the church where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's the church that will overcome. We're gonna overcome even sin and death itself. And I hope this morning that you are, you're in a good place physically, that you're safe, that you're well, you're secure, you have the things you need. I hope you're also in a good place spiritually. I hope that you're not panicked, you're not overly worried, you're not frantic, but instead you're trusting you're praying and you're hopeful, knowing that God is using this present evil time, this virus, it's an evil for sure, but God is gonna overcome it and God is going to use it for good. And I hope you're praying that God do that, use this for good, cause good things to come from this great evil. You know, this is going to be the first time in the history of our church. Gosh, you might even be able to say, the history of the church of all ages, when we will most likely be celebrating Easter without gathering. Wow. That's like almost never happened, but this year it's likely that it will. Be praying. Be praying that despite that little inconvenience, God will work in the hearts and the minds of people who might tune in and hear the good news about Jesus and for the first time, put their faith in Jesus. Maybe some of those people are looking at your life and, and they are seeing in you a peace, a calm, a perspective, an attitude of wanting to serve others. They just, they don't understand. Well, you need to let them understand in appropriate ways, at appropriate times. It's because of Jesus. It's because of the way Jesus suffered for you. Um, you know, what matters now is... Uh, not so much what we, we do regarding this virus as how we respond to it, right? What matters now is how uh, we love each other and how we love our neighbors and how we practice loving God and how we pray and how we do this while practicing social distancing. It's tricky. It's very tricky. But John says, you see, the day is coming. Get this, get this. The day is coming when the work of the four horsemen will be entirely over. And won't that be a great day? You see, we know it's coming. We believe it's coming. We're certain it's coming. That is the hope of the church, that Jesus is coming back. And that will be a great, great day. Well, let's worship in song. And before we do, would you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful that when we open your word and we listen to it and we read it and we reflect on it, you meet us, you speak to us, you guide us. 
And this morning, you give us a message of incredible hope. You remind us, as this book does, over and over and over again, we will overcome because the Lamb has overcome. And may we find ways to express that truth, that rock-solid foundation of our faith, that because Jesus has overcome, we will overcome. May we find ways to reflect that to the people around us, people in our family, people in our neighborhoods, people at work. Help us to reflect the confidence that comes from knowing that you will guide your people and you will bring them through the great tribulation and therefore we will overcome. Amen and amen to that, Father. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.